Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm your host, Brett Hutchins, and I'm presently sitting in the beautiful city of Prague in the Czech Republic, the host city for the 2018 International Communication Association Conference. And I must admit, I'm feeling pretty fortunate to be able to do so. Sitting with me is Jennifer McLaren from the Department of Radio, Television, Film at the University of Texas in Austin. Jennifer is a feminist media scholar whose research critically interrogates the cultural production of difference in popular media, with a particular focus on action films and sport. Her research papers appear in journals such as International Journal of Communication, Continuum and New Formations, as well as in the edited collections Feminist Erasures, Challenging Backlash Culture and New Sporting Femininities Embodied Politics in Post-Feminist Times. Jennifer has lived a varied and interesting professional life. Prior to joining the Academy, she taught English in Spain, Mexico, the Czech Republic, living in Prague for two years, and also served as a Peace Corps volunteer in Morocco. Further information about Jennifer's research, teaching and many activities can be found on her website, www.jennifermcleeran.com. McLeeran spelt M-C-C-L-E-A-R-E-N. I've asked Jennifer to speak with you for a couple of reasons. First, feminist voices are always welcome on the Mediasport podcast series. And secondly, she is presently working on her first book, Branded Difference promoting female athletes in the Ultimate Fighting Championships, which is contracted by the University of Illinois Press. Ultimate Fighting Championship, or UFC, is in my mind a company and competition that deserves significant and ongoing scholarly attention, and Jennifer is working towards delivering this outcome. Jennifer, thanks for speaking with me for the Mediasport podcast series. Well, thank you so much for having me, and thank you for that great introduction. It's a start with a a reasonably straightforward question. Why the interest in mixed martial arts Mm. and UFC in particular? Sure, I actually came to study mixed martial arts in particular because I'd been practicing martial arts for about about 10, 12 years. And uh, I was watching, I started watching UFC with a group of martial arts friends. I practiced Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. And so the community generally comes together and, you know, because Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu is a part of mixed martial arts, um, you know, I started watching it with friends about a year before they introduced women into the organization. At the same time, I was getting my PhD at the University of Washington and I was interested in, um, you know, of course, feminist media studies and particularly issues around uh, physical agency in the body, particularly in terms of gender, um, also as it intersects with uh, race and sexuality. And so I'd been watching for about a year and then all of this buzz about Ronda Rousey started um, and I was really intrigued because of sort of my scholarly interests and then sort of my personal interest in martial arts because women hadn't seen this sort of exposure in combat sports. There hadn't been this sort of excitement about having um, women competing um, in mixed martial arts or in combat sports more broadly. And so... I just sort of got fascinated because it was such a new phenomenon and then of course nobody was really writing about it and so it came along at the perfect time. I needed to write a dissertation and someone needed to write about women in the UFC so it was sort of a very serendipitous moment um, and now of course as you mentioned I'm, I'm turning that dissertation into a book. And 
The celebrity figure of Ronda Rousey looms large in any discussion of UFC. I must admit, I first came across her when she was still practicing judo. Sure. And used her blog to expose a judo coach mm-hmm. for alleged or actual abuse of female competitors, which right. uh, was really sort of, well, one, disturbing, but two, sort of an interesting use of media, which spoke to, I think, a, probably a, a level of literacy that Ronda Rousey had about the power of media and perhaps some athletes haven't had. So, but in your mind, what's the significance of Rousey in, in the context of UFC and popular understandings of the relationship between the female body, athleticism and violence? Sure. I think there's a, a few different things that were happening at the same time that allowed Rousey to become the star that she was. She was sort of early in sort of the excitement around women's MMA. You know, women's MMA had been around for a while, but it hadn't really taken as much notice as, as men's mixed martial arts. And she was very good. She was winning fights in very fantastic sort of ways. Um, and she was a really impressive a fighter that put on fights that were really exciting to watch. She was also very charismatic and um, if you look at sort of some of the literature on what makes sort of the you know what makes the star athlete, what's the combination of things that works to make someone marketable, um, it's a combination of factors. It has to do of course they have to have skill, they have to be you know good at what they do. Uh, then they also have to be, you know, physically attractive, and this goes for for men and for women. If you if you want sponsorships, and you know, most sporting organizations want you to have sport sponsorships, you know, they want you to have that sort of, um, you know, conventional attractiveness. And so she had that, and then she also had charisma, and you know, she was able to portray um, the sort of persona of the fighter, the sort of aggressive. Uh, confidence won't back down is you know you know she projected that into her fights in ways that actually intimidated a lot of people that she fought against and so at the same time we started seeing a moment when we start looking at sort of more feminist uh, you know inflections in the media we start seeing a moment where physical empowerment um, becomes a buzzword or empowerment in general um, and it was an interest in sort of seeing women and girls being more confident and producing media products and advertising around this idea of uh, doing something like a girl, for example, is not uh, you know, something that should be considered negative. And so there was this moment of you know, wanting to have empowered heroines in the media or wanting to have empowered role models in the media. And an interesting thing with Rousey is that the UFC, a couple years into promoting her, figured out that she was actually more popular with female audiences than she was with male audiences. And sort of their assumption, you know, like so many sports industries, you know, have historically done, the assumption is that female athletes will be, you know, popular for the male gaze. And they realized that they had a way to draw in female audiences through the star power of, of Rousey. And so it was those combination of factors that she came along at the right time, had the right amount of, uh, you know, the charisma and the skill and the attractiveness and 
uh, the ability to draw female fighters. It all sort of like it was a confluence of things that created this the star that she was. And I talk I'm talking about her in the past since you'll notice because she's now <laughs> gone on to. I think women's MMA has evolved beyond her. I, I, I looked at uh, the first uh, fight recently uh, that she did in the UFC between her and Liz Carmouche, and just the quality of the fighting and the skill wasn't as high level as it is only a few years later. But it's because of Rousey, because of the, the star power that she brought in and the way that she had access to mainstream audiences like no other UFC star had, it invigorated women's MMA, and it, you know, pushed the UFC to start promoting women, and because of that, women were able to elevate their game very quickly because suddenly they were, you know, being being given a stage where they could perform at the level that they, you know, have always been capable of, but may not have had the shot to do. In terms of UFC itself, as a as an organization, as a former competition, you refer to it as a, a transmedia empire. Who controls this empire? And what are its key features? Sure. So, uh, the UFC was owned for since the early 2000s until 2016 by a company called Zufa. And Zufa was owned by uh, two um, sort of Las Vegas casino moguls and by their childhood friends, um, who is the president of the organization. So it's the Fertitta brothers with the casino moguls, and then Dana White is the president of the organization. And what they did is, you know, the way that I describe it in the book and the way that I theorize it is, you know, UFC for a long time had a very difficult time gaining legitimacy in mainstream media because it was sort of perceived and, and, you know, accurately so in some cases as being a very sort of brutal, no-holds-barred, violent sport uh, that couldn't actually, was banned from even being on cable for several years and sort of it went underground and people would would talk about the fights on email listservs. So this is like, you know, mid to late 90s. Um, and then when Zufa bought it, they tried to sort of tame it, they introduced rules, and they were constantly trying to access the mainstream media market. And they were still having difficulty doing so. And so one of the things that they adopted pretty early on was using digital media platforms to circulate information about the UFC. And so they gave access to bloggers um, because they couldn't get sort of traction in, in sports media and sports news media, so they used bloggers. Anybody who had a blog, I could have, you know, back during that time, I could have created a blog um, and gotten credentialed as a media person to go to a UFC event. And I know people that actually did that um, because they were looking for any way to generate buzz about them. And so they also were early adopters of Twitter. They encouraged their athletes to go on to Twitter. Um, Dana White, the president, was has been very active on, on Twitter. And so they really used a lot of social media and digital media early on because they just couldn't access legacy media. And so they had to develop as a transmedia organization out of necessity. Another thing that they did in um, sort of the mid-2000s, and this was the thing that really turned things around for them, is they created a reality television show that was originally on Spike and later moved over to Fox 
and it was about introducing people to fighters um, so that people you know that weren't necessarily UFC, UFC fans could actually get to know the fighters uh, you know pick their favorites and so um, at the end of a season they would have a big event and they would either show it on pay-per-view or they would show it I think at the time they were showing it on pay-per-view um, but it was a it was basically a marketing the whole reality show was marketing for their pay-per-view fights and so it was a way to generate buzz it was a way to sort of create conflicts between fighters to set up the fights because fight promotion is very much about sort of you know convincing the audience that there's a, a legitimate conflict between the fighters that are about to fight so that you can see the drama unfold on the, you know in the cage so you know, those efforts really change things around for the organization, and, and they consider themselves a millennial organization in that they were so able to adapt to the ways that millennials consume sports, which is, uh, you know, isn't the same as how people traditionally have consumed the NFL or the NBA. Um, and they sold uh, to WMEING, which is a talent agency bought the UFC in 2016 for four billion dollars and it was the largest sale of a sports media organization ever um, and it's still Dana White is still the president but you know they've been moving and shaking since that sale and they actually just signed a deal with ESPN um, to air UFC events on ESPN instead of Fox now which was which was a very lucrative deal for them as well I find it really interesting because when you talked about the ultimate fighter in the reality show, yet they were one of the first sports organisations experimenting with live streaming of undercard events on Facebook at exactly the same time. And it moves us away from what's often a quite predictable either or. It's, it's digital or it's broadcast. And they've managed to come up with a model where these things all come together. And I, yeah, I mean that's exactly what they did. Is 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 that they started thinking about ways that they could use various different platforms, and they were very early, you know, broadcasting on on Facebook or streaming on Facebook. And they also created they have a, a digital streaming platform called UFC Fight Pass that's basically a catalog of lots of different types of uh, combat sports and martial arts. They also have, you can watch old pay-per-views, you can watch old, you know, things that aired on Fox. You can see, you know, you know, human interest piece on the fighters. You can see replays of the reality show. Um, and it's, it's just like Netflix for fight fans. And I think, you know, they're an interesting story in terms of sort of what happens when a sports media organization comes of age in in new media, in digital media, in a time where transmedia sort of synergy is really important to um, to audiences and to organizations because it's a way to sort of, you know, tap into, you know, the way that we've been, we've become accustomed to watching media. And I don't think other sports media organizations, I think they've lagged behind a little bit because they were relying so much on legacy media and sort of the traditional live broadcasts. Um, whereas the UFC has found ways to sort of integrate, you know, various different transmedia projects into their into their media repertoire. And you mentioned earlier that you know the perceived or actual violence of the UFC. 
mean, as someone who's practicing experience, and someone who's obviously watched all of you have seen, what's your response to the critique about, you know, an excessive amount of violence? Sure. Well... <laughs> First of all, I practice Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu. I don't practice mixed martial arts, so there there is a difference. However, no, that's all right. That's all right. I just want to be clear. Uh, But so it's interesting when I watch with my my training partners, for example, what we're assessing is the technical skill. How are how is the fighter? What is their strategy? How are they executing that strategy? What mistakes are they making? Um, and I don't necessarily look at it. I mean, there there are times that it, it you know it gets very bloody. And me personally watching it, I don't view it as violence because um, uh, there's a. I'm trying to remember the name of it, but Alex Channon and someone else who I'm forgetting their name right now. They have a project called something along the lines of love love fighting hate violence or something like that but it's really this idea that violence is is non-consensual and fighting in a professional sport is consensual is strategic it's not it's not whatever goes it's there are rules there is etiquette there is you know respect now there are certainly violations of that respect um, but I would say generally when I watch it and when I watch it with, with you know, other martial artists, you know, we, we're not looking for that sort of brawling, no technical skill, no respect sort of style of fighting. We're looking at it in terms of the actual skill and technique that goes into it. That being said... I do acknowledge and I do critique in my work the fact that there's a lot of damage that bodies take and we don't fully know the consequences of things like traumatic brain injuries and CTE um, on fighters. There hasn't been a lot of research on that. So while I don't necessarily see it as this performed violence in the same way that a lot of people would critique it, I do see it as potentially very problematic. and traumatizing for for the fighters because we don't really know long term how this is impacting their bodies and their livelihoods after they retire Um, and so I think for me personally that's where I I tend to take the critique when we start talking about violence and you use the term brand difference in your work something that's obviously central to what you're trying to sort of explain what are you getting at by that term? sure so, one of the things that I started noticing in, in my research is that because the organization is a transmedia organization and they're interested in developing not just their mainstream content but also a lot of niche media content, they do that in order to expand their audiences um, because they understand that their audiences are it, they're they're plural. They're not monolithic. There's not just one style of fight fan because obviously, you know, watching with my training partners, I'm a di- different you know fight fan than maybe sort of the stereotypical meathead in a bar. Um, and then they also understand and that 
you know, people come, you know, fight fans have different identities and they, they may be coming, they may be different races, they may be different nationalities, they may be different sexualities, and now gender is certainly something that they, they take into consideration because they're considering their female fans. And so they discovered that representation matters, um, that in order to draw in a diverse fan base, you need to represent diverse fighters. And so that's been really interesting because, you know, much of the research on women's sports in particular tends to focus on three overarching critiques, and those are that women are underrepresented in sports media. They get something like 4% of all sports media coverage. Uh, they're trivialized or sort of not seen as working at the same level as male athletes. And then they're often objectified or sexualized. Um, and so while you could argue that the UFC does all three of those things at times, um, and you can certainly make those critiques. They do sexualize their female fighters. Um, they do have octagon girls that walk around you know, the cage in bikinis before rounds. Um, so you can make those critiques, but I was interested in thinking about taking our knowledge of, of sort of a particular women's sport beyond that. And so what, what I'm identifying here with branded difference is sort of a shift in a, in a sports media organization that gone, went from thinking of their audience as monolithic to thinking of it as multiple and diverse, and really them wanting to connect with that and to use that. Um, but there are some embedded problems with that that I, I critique further um, in that I actually think for all the visibility that, that the UFC is giving diverse female fighters, there's some very problematic things that are going on within the organization that I think needs to be addressed. And the most prominent one I see is the issue of labor and an issue of exploitation because the UFC is making a lot of money and like I said, they've sold for $4 billion, but a lot of their fighters, um, you know, struggle to make ends meet. If they're not, if you're not a superstar within an organization, it's very, very difficult to um, sustain yourself. You have to get outside sponsorships, um, and so there's labor involved in, you know, promoting your sponsor. Um, they are contracted employees, so that means that you know, they're not guaranteed any sort of income if they don't fight, uh, if they don't fulfill their contracts. If they get injured and can't fight, then they have no revenue coming in. Uh, they only, they have limited insurance, um, and so those are, the insurance generally covers for the period around the fight, but if they get injured during training, you know, they're responsible for, for, for their own insurance. And the way the UFC sort of rationalizes this um, is that, they see, you know, they see it as the, the fighter's fault if they're not if they're not charismatic if they're not all the things that I mentioned about Ronda Rousey if they're not charismatic if they're not sort of you know attractive and really skilled fighters um, and if they're not drawing in their own audiences then it's their fault that they're not achieving the same level of stardom as as people like Ronda Rousey or Conor McGregor. And so it's this myth of meritocracy that, that, you know, they use to justify why so many of their employee or their contracted employees are not making ends meet. Um, and so I see it as, as a, you know, a, a problematic labor issue. Um, and that's also something that I explore more in the book. Um, there is a fighters um, union that is just organized called Project Spearhead. Um, and Leslie Smith, who is a fighter in the UFC, um, 
you know, has really been driving those efforts to unionize. And she was recently, uh, she was scheduled to fight. She was on a, she had a three-fight contract, and she was going to do her third fight. And uh, the other fighter missed weight and had to back out of the fight, so she wasn't able to do the fight. And so she asked the UFC to extend her contract, and the UFC said that they wouldn't, even though Leslie has a winning record. Um, and they ended up just paying her for the last fight um, just to sort of, you know, move her along and get her out of the way. Um, or that's what Leslie says. Um, she says that they, it's basically a labor issue because they, because of her efforts to unionize, she's saying that the UFC is actually, um, uh, you know, punishing her for, for this. Um, and so it's currently, you know, they're looking to, uh, uh, to file um, she's working with a lawyer um, to see what can be done um, and to you know further their efforts to unionize in order to protect the fighters. Um, and so this is something that I'm just just now getting into the research on. Um, but I think you know, based on my observations over you know the past several years, I think issues of labor and issues of fighter pay. Um, are really are really important, and so when I talk about branded difference, I see it as masking some of you know because there are a lot of ways that we could celebrate it, and we as scholars and activists could say, look, this is a sports organization that's promoting women. We've been wanting we wanted this visibility for female athletes for so long, but they and they're doing it very successfully, but it's not to the benefit of the fighters, it's to the benefit of the organization. And so I actually see branded difference as sort of evacuating um, difference of, of sort of this understanding of, you know, how power operates and actually being detrimental to the fighters in the end um, because it's a way for the organization to make money um, but off of that difference um, but not for the fighters themselves. You actually describe your research as actually involved in interviews with fighters and, and staff, UFC staff. Um, I mean, there's a couple of questions that come to my mind. Like, what did you learn from those, those that approach? Also, how did you gain access? I mean, methodologically, this is always one of the key issues we face as research. Yeah, how do you gain access? You know, so a couple of different ways in terms of access. So being in martial arts being in Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, my larger community is made up of MMA fighters and UFC fighters. There were, you know, people in my gym that were good friends with a, a couple uh, female fighters in the UFC. Um, so that was my initial entry. Um, and then in terms of the getting access to staff, which really is UFC staff is a separate, you know, is a separate entity than the fighters. They really are, you know, different, which tells you something about their organizational structure. To get access to them, I actually had a friend in grad school who, whose high school friend worked at the UFC. And so that was my first entry there. So it's interesting how, do you, how your, you know, broader networks, I think it's, you know, as a researcher, it's important to sort of, you never know who might know someone. And once you have that initial access, it's easier to sort of then continue on and, and you know, keep talking with folks, so. Then you've got a, another paper at this conference, co-authors of Mia Fisher, mm -hmm. it's titled Trans Athletes and the Queering of Loss and Sex Segregated Sport. What's that paper examining? So, 
Uh, Fallon Fox was a uh, trans fighter, uh, male to female trans fighter, um, who was outed um, a few years ago. She wasn't in the, in the UFC. She was in another lower promotion. And I did a paper uh, for um, New Formations a couple years ago that was examining sort of the the sexist and cis-sexist discourses around her and how she was sort of in this position of damned if she does, damned if she doesn't because, you know, as a athlete, you want to win. And as a male-to-female trans person, in order to prove that you are indeed female, you have to be unexceptional. So, because if you're exceptional, then people are going to assume it's that you have some sort of innate advantage because you were born male. And so, our paper, uh, the paper that I'm doing here with Mia Fisher, is actually looking at, we interviewed Fallon Fox, um, to try to figure out how we could get around this sort of winning, losing, uh, success and failure paradigms that are in sports because the fundamental paradigm of sport that you cannot get away from is that it's a competition and there are winners and losers. Um, And so for a trans athlete who's sort of stuck in this discursive paradox where, you know, if, if, if she's a woman, then she needs to lose. And if she's not a woman, then, you know, she's winning and that's the reason. So if she's stuck there, so what are other ways to think about it? And she said um, she actually lost and she found losing to be very freeing because sort of the pressure was lifted and she didn't have to prove her gender identity anymore. Um, And, you know, there was a sense of freedom and a sense of greater purpose of being part of the trans community and being an advocate for the trans community. Um, so what we're trying to do with that paper specifically is just sort of disrupt, it's a, it's a queer analysis and that we're trying to disrupt the sort of dominant paradigms of sport and the dominant sort of sex segregated paradigm um, that exists in sport. A reasonably mean question at short notice. <laughs> Could you recommend a book that you think listeners should read? A book that, sorry, what was the last Listen, part? That listeners should read. Listeners should read. You know, I was just, I just started reading uh, Kim Tofaletti's uh, Women's Sports Fan Book, and I know you just interviewed her recently. And I think that book does a really fantastic job of looking at issues around women's sports fans in particular through like various issues that impact. So she, you know, assesses sort of our neoliberal cultural environment. She assesses uh, our post-feminist cultural environment. And I think it gives a really rich and nuanced understanding of women's sports fans um, on, a, on a pretty macro level and a, and a pretty global level as well, um, which I don't think I've seen before. Um, and so I think that, that um, I would highly recommend that book. Jennifer, thanks for taking out time out from this year's ICA to speak with me for the Media Sport Podcast series. Have a great conference and a safe journey home. All right, thank you so much. <laughs>